What you value is what you see. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Brady Volmering. Brady's the founder of DAC Baseball, a performance center that works with baseball athletes online and in person to really develop an awesome swing. And I, I found Brady through Facebook and a couple of mutual coaches that I've talked to and really loved his approach to improving a baseball player's game. And there's a lot more that happens than just the weight room, just adding size onto your back and doing these type of things. And today we really talked about how to do that through making environments, through having intention when we try to fix something. We talked a lot about how if we just cue an athlete and we just see something that we as coaches think is wrong, we try to cue it, we try to we start to make a robotic athlete. And we, we kind of talked about how we need to go about fixing this as a coach. And then we talked about some of the failures that we need to have our athletes face in training and how it all can't be failure, but it all can't be success if we really wanted to transfer to the field. I had an awesome conversation with Brady. I really got a lot out of this and I'm really starting to enjoy diving into other sports and how they're kind of taking this environmental approach and holistic approach to training and applying it to their athletes. And I love taking nuggets from other sports and kind of applying it to the sports that I work with. So hopefully you guys got something out of this podcast. Thank you guys for listening. All right, well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to have this talk with you. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of where you got to or how you got to where you're at right now, kind of how you opened up DAC Baseball and kind of the, the process to get to where you're at? Yeah, for sure. So it, it, it was a pretty long journey for sure. Um, so growing up, I grew up here in Michigan and uh, I mean, I was like playing sports, anything with a ball, really. So, you know, basketball, football, baseball, um, soccer for a little bit. I enjoyed kind of getting all of those and just doing anything athletic. You know, no one ever really had a push me into that stuff. That's just something that I wanted to do, which kind of, kind of an interesting story to go with that. Something that I always remember is my, my parents would always say, Hey, work before play. So she, or, or my mom would say, you know, you got to go do this work for 30 minutes and then you can go, you know, play baseball or you can go play football or basketball or whatever. Um, so something that's, that's kind of funny for me to think about it now is it seems like we have a lot of parents that are pushing their, their kids um, into kind of playing these sports, right? They're the ones that are kind of contacting trainers um, and everything like that. And just thinking back for me, it's interesting because, you know, I never kind of had that upbringing. And I think what that's done is now I understand like from a very young age that um, is kind of me that was pursuing it. There's no one put, pushing me through it. And what that led to is me ultimately digging deeper um, than I probably would have if, you know, a, a parent or, or someone else would have said like, Hey, you got to go train today. Like that was never the case. It was always, I, I'm ready to go train. Um, you know, I was always digging into stuff. So how that kind of came about is I played all sports through roughly um, ninth grade and starting in ninth grade, I started getting into like online internet forums um, as well as different articles and stuff. So, you know, now everyone goes on Instagram. There's some people on Twitter. Um, back then it was online forums. So for baseball, there was like set pro was one. That was a really good one. Um, Paul Nyman shout out to him. And then there's also let's talk pitching. So actually how it kind of started is I got really interested in baseball and I started keeping a training log on this online forum, the let's talk pitching online forum. Um, so every day, you know, I'd write down, Hey, this is what I did for my workout. This is what I did for hitting. Um, this is what I did for throwing. And, you know, I was pretty religious about it. Like I would, I remember at one point I would say like, I was trying to switch hit and I'd be like, okay, I got to take 400 swings a day. 
and 60 got to be like this, you know, 30 got to be like this. So that was just kind of always my approach is very methodical and, and try to measure everything um, so that I knew what helped me make progress versus what didn't. So from high school into college, um, I ended up walking on, I only had like one offer out of high school. I, I wasn't that good, right? I was really into training, um, but the, the skill itself wasn't that great. So I ended up walking on to D2 there in Michigan. Um, I stayed there for a year and a half and me and, and the head coach or kind of the coaching staff ended up having some differences on, on training philosophies, which is kind of funny now with me looking back at it. You know, there's a head coach and he's got one of his walk-ons that disagrees with, with what he's saying. Um, so it's, he is probably kind of funny for him. Um, but you know, obviously for me, I was taking it very seriously. So I ended up transferring from there, um, during my sophomore year and going to Cornerstone university where I, I finished up my playing career there. And what I really liked about, about that place was, you know, they had, a, they had an indoor tunnel, they had pitch machine, they had a, a weight room specifically for the baseball team. So really that, that was just kind of my playground where I could go and I could, you know, experiment anytime I wanted because it was, it was right beneath the baseball field and I had access, like we had cars that we could swipe. Um, so I had consistent access to that. And then what that led to is I started writing online articles, um, blog posts, just because, you know, I was obviously digging quite a bit and I figured, Hey, maybe this can help someone else. Um, and, and maybe as much as that, I just, you know, needed to get all the thoughts that I had, um, down on paper or down somewhere. So started writing a blog, um, got some, you know, interest from those. And then eventually what that led to is me creating a website. The first one was very, very poor. Um, I, I designed it kind of, you know, did all the pictures and everything. It was, it was pretty rough. Um, but eventually that led into, to what it is now. Um, the website, you know, just kind of updated as I went and it was a long process, but eventually right after I graduated or right before I graduated, um, I ended up getting my first couple remote clients, um, Right, right before I graduated college. So that's, that was kind of the birth of deck baseball. And then, uh, that led into myself and, and one of my friends from Cornerstone, um, Jared Burton, he's trained efficiently on Instagram. I think, uh, Brett Adams mentioned him when he was on, cause Brett was there for, for a month or two as well. Um, but me and him en ended up moving out to Missouri to, to run the training there. Um, we're actually not there anymore, but it was, uh, it was a pretty good experience out there just getting to work with, you know, hitters and, and athletes, um, actually like hands-on. So that's kind of the the story behind how that baseball came to be. No, that's awesome. Every coach that almost every coach, I should say that I've got on has kind of been the, the self-experimenter, uh, kind of growing through. And I, I was very much the same way. It's like, I, I would read something online. I'm like, Oh, I gotta, I'm going to do this in my training. Like this is, and then just learning through that process. I'm kind of, I want to know, one and a couple ways here. One, how you got into that self-experiment realm of things, rather than the, the the player that goes through and has to be coached, like has to be whatever's on that sheet. You know, like it, it's not that self-experiment. It's not really that digging deeper. It's just doing what that coach said. Kind of where that spawned from in yourself, and then two, kind of how you got away with it when coaches are there giving like pieces of paper and like, hey, you have to do this. Like, how were you getting through the self-experiment on that end? Right. Oh man. Um, how, how it kind of, kind of birthed in me. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure. All I know is that I, I guess when it really started, I went to a, a tryout when I was younger and, and made a team, whatever. So, so basically what that told me is like, okay, this is something that, you know, I'm kind of good at, like, I, I like athletics. Um, this is something that I'm okay at and whatever, whatever it was, whether seeing, 
you know, major league baseball players on TV, whatever it was, because that was always the goal, right? To, to become a professional baseball player. Um, so I think that just inspired me to really kind of take the reins and things. Um, and, and that's just kind of me as a person is anything that I'm interested, in, I'm, I'm going to dive in. Like I'm either all or nothing. There's not really a, there's not really a middle ground for me. Like if this isn't, if what I'm doing isn't taking me to, to where I want to go in, in, in some part of my life, I'm not really going to, you know, dig into that. It's, it's got to be leading me somewhere. And then as for the second part there, when, so my thought when dealing with coaches is because I've done it wrong and I've done it right. Um, the, the, the right thing to do is definitely not to say, well, you're wrong and I'm right. And, and that's it <laughs> because, you know, from the coach, like you have to be able to look at anything from, from everyone else's perspective. I think that's one of the most important things to be able to do is take a step back, kind of take that bird's eye view and, and be able to see, okay, this is what they're seeing. You know, they've only known me for, let's say a couple months, um, whatever the case may be. They don't really know my journey to get here, what I've been through. So, okay, I need to understand that. Um, and then just trying to meet them where they are and saying, you know, if they're, if they're saying like, here's this piece of paper, do this, um, approach them. If, if you can't get them to change at all, then, okay. You know, maybe you have to do it and you have to do your stuff on your own. And, and ultimately if, if that situation is like that, um, you may need to, you know, think about leaving. Um, that's what I did, but yeah, it's just, it's just being able to see their perspective, meet them where they are and kind of have a conversation with them. And that conversation will tell you, Hey, is this situation going to work? Um, can we make this work? Or it's going to tell you, Hey, this situation isn't really going to work. And, and, you know, I need to make some changes. No, I like that a lot. Uh, I'm next kind of question. I'm, I'm interested in how, so you, you, you took that big step to start writing those articles online uh, and you kind of got that positive feedback. You got that momentum rolling. What was kind of the step of, all right, I, I like writing these articles online. I like doing this. I'm getting some positive feedback here to actually opening up a, a business, you know, like th that, that big next step. What was kind of that process like for some of the listeners that are maybe out there in those shoes right now, thinking about opening up something like that, opening up a, a sports performance center? Right. So for me, it, it came about because I was getting close to, to graduating and I knew, um, cause I actually did have a couple other jobs after graduating. Um, a little side story, me and, and Jared Burton, the guy that I mentioned earlier, um, we both worked on a tree farm, uh, after we graduated. So, so we would spend, or we spent the summer there. So I'd be on like 20 acres of trees and, you know, no one else was there. So I was like, man, I, I don't want to keep doing this. So we ended up going on like a 30 day trip around the country. Um, you know, once we'd saved up enough money and that's kind of where, um, I got the idea for like, okay, th there's a lot of information out there. I can learn a lot more. Um, and I think that this is something that I want to do for a long time. So it's really just born out of transitioning from me understanding that I'm not going to be able to play forever to, I understand that now. I know that I can help a lot of people um, because like, I, I think a lot of coaches, their, their drive is, I know a lot that I wish I knew when I was younger, right? That's what every coach seems to say. Um, and that's probably the same thing with me is I, I wish I knew what I know now. And if I can set an environment up now, for, you know, for players, they're going to be able to get much better than they would be otherwise. Yeah, exactly. If I knew, yeah, I think the same thing. Like if I, if I knew then what I knew now, it would be a totally different game changer. So on that, on that realm of things, like what do you know now? Like what, what kind of is your, your, your approach to training these baseball players and rotational athletes that come into your center? What matters kind of, how are we getting it wrong in the sports, uh, sports performance world? Like what's kind of your pathway? Um, so how are we getting it wrong? Um, I think the biggest thing is, and I'm talking about specifically baseball because that's the realm that I'm in, but this probably applies to other sports as well. 
I think the biggest thing is that we still have the perspective of if, if this looks wrong, all I need to do is tell the athlete, Hey, this looks wrong. Now, now use this cue to change it. Um, and that's, <laughs> it, it, just, it doesn't work. Um, so, so what I try to do is take, take kind of a, a, an approach that's a little bit farther back. Um, so, so a lot of the people that have kind of influenced this is Franz Bosch. Um, I love his stuff. Um, I love just kind of the, the holistic approach. So what we're doing is for, for hitting specifically, um, I'll use that is we're not just looking at, Hey, I, I have video of your swing. This is what I see wrong. This is what you need to do to fix it. Instead it's okay. Maybe there are some small things that need to be adjusted, but in terms of motor learning, we need to make sure that your, your intention doesn't change. So like if we have you in the cage and you're hitting off the tee and I'm saying, Hey, get your elbow up a little bit more. And, and you do, everyone feels good. You know, if, if it's a lesson, I, I despise lessons, but if it's a lesson, you know, and the dad's there, he's like, Oh man, he's making progress. Like he looks better. But then when you say, you know, in a week when he's on the field, he's facing the pitchers in a live situation, that change that he made in the cage off the tee in a very non-competitive situation is completely different. And a big reason for that is, you know, number one, it's a different environment. Well, I guess the whole thing is the environment, but number one, there's no moving ball. Number two, his intention wasn't the same. So your intention in, his, in a game is going to be hit the ball as hard and as far as you can, right? That's most people's intention or depending on the situation, you know, it might be to drive a ball the other way. If he's thrown outside, whatever the intention might be. If you're trying to make swing changes and, and this can go for any motor learning um, activity that you're doing, whether it's in baseball or not. But when you're trying to make a change, your intention needs to stay the same for that change to transfer. So what I try to do then is design a drill or, or put them in an environment where they're going to make that adjustment with their front elbow without having to consciously think about it. So put them in a situation where they have no choice but to do that, even if they're not trying to do that, if that makes sense. No, I, I mean, I love that. I, we talk all the time about the what you mentioned of like that looks wrong. First of all, as a coach, like just because you think it looks wrong, like, why is that actually wrong? But two, if you try to cue that athlete, one, they're either going to do what you said, where it looks better in the environment that you created, that perfect environment where it's off the tee and the dad's giving everybody a high five and a paycheck. Yep. Or it's two, and this is, I think, maybe more in the, the football world, is like you think something looks wrong and then you try to fix like a, a running form thing. And then they're focusing on, let's say, high knees. And now they, they run like a robot. And, they, they're, and I see it all the time. I have an athlete that is, been in quotations fixed and coached his entire life and he runs and i'm like man dude like you run like a robot like that is not like if a tiger was chasing you you are dead because that thing is just going to destroy you and you're running like high knees 90 90 and this this totally like robotic shaped athlete and, yeah. and there's there's only two pathways for that right and, and if you put them in an environment where you know they're not familiar with or like the environment that they haven't trained in that's going to completely fall apart it's like you said if they're being chased by a tiger, you know, that, that doesn't really happen anymore, but let's say they were, and they're running through an environment where the grounds and even they have to make cuts and stuff. Like you can't maintain that perfect form. You know, you, you have to have a level of variability within that. And that goes with any type of motor skill that, that you're trying to do within your sport. Yeah. And, and then I'm interested in your, the intention when you're trying to fix something. Cause I, I really like that thought process of, how do you keep the intention the same? And in the world of football and the, the ethics that I work with, one of the things we try to do is some sort of small-sided game because it, we can have them sprints all we want. But if 
if we have that small side of game where the intention again now is to score, the intention again is to evade, we're going to see it much more. It's going to look much more like it does on the field. It's hopefully going to transfer much more like it's going to look on the field. How do you keep that intention the same? Like what are your kind of your focuses in the, the batting world? So, okay. So I'll, I'll use an example because that's probably the best way to, to kind of go about explaining it. Um, so I have a hitter that I've been working with for about two years. Um, he's an indie ball hitter. And when he first started, I wasn't as, you know, obviously I have a lot more to go, um, in terms of like how I teach, but even back then it was way worse than it is now. Um, so there are some specific swing changes that we wanted to make with him. And what we, how we started was kind of, like I said, I was like, okay, your, you know, your posture you're leaning back in your posture. This leads to having too much of an upward swing, your hands are dropping, whatever, all, all this different type of stuff. And so we tried to like, basically he tried to fix that without fix that without keeping the environment the same. Um, so we would do drills where the purpose of the drill was to keep your hands up higher. And, and that just, it didn't work. Right. His, his, when he went back into live competition, the, the, the changes didn't stick. Um, and, and it just kind of fell apart. Right. So then the next offseason, what we did, or this past year, really, what we did is we put him in environments that were very realistic, and we forced him into environments where he was going to fail. So, for instance, let's say when you make contact, your hands, you know, roughly you want your hands around shoulder level. Um, and again, this is very baseball specific, but you want, you want your hands around shoulder level, and his would drop below shoulder level. So what we did is, okay, we're going to go 90 mile an hour fastballs on the machine, and they're going to be at your shoulders. Because in terms of a baseball swing, that is the hardest pitch to get to because you have the least amount of time and it's also at his shoulders. So like, it's literally going to force him to swing with his hands like up higher. And his intention was, his intention wasn't to hit it 40 degrees in the air, right? Kind of like a pop-up. His intention was, Hey, drive this through the center fielder. Um, and so that's very similar to what his intention might be in a game. Right. So then by putting him in that environment, his body had to adjust right? Maybe it takes more time. Um, cause this is something that I think about a lot as well. You can make changes that look good very quickly, but in my experience, most of the time, if those changes happen too fast, like that's not actually a good thing and they're going to fall apart and they're not going to stick in order for any change to stick. It needs to go through barriers, right? It needs to be challenged. So th that's just kind of how I think about it is essentially trying to put them in situations where whatever we're trying to fix is made worse. So it's made harder. And then also putting them in situations where whatever they're trying to fix is made easier because, because you also don't want to put them in that failure all the time over and over and over again. Right. Because then, you know, they get discouraged because we have to take the emotional aspect into it as well. So we need both sides of that coin of, Hey, we're going to, today's going to be really hard. You're going to struggle a lot, you know, kind of, <laughs> kind of get ready for that. Right. Buck up for that. And then there's other days where it's like, okay, today's an easier day. Um, we're going to put you in a little bit easier situation so that you remember what it's like to, to dominate. Yeah. And we talked about that a little bit before the podcast, before we started rolling. And I, I love that point of that failure in training. And I, I think it is, I would, I feel like way more important now, just because there, there's not, there are a ton of participation trophies. There are a ton of like, everything's a win, everything like the private sector gets paid to like, like you said, like show that dad that's watching like the better swing. And if you're, if you're striking out the kid during your session, like that's probably not good in the short term with that dad being there. But I, I love the thought process of, all right, we do need to challenge that athlete. We do need to make him fail because in real life, in the game, he's going to fail. And with that, is that with these intentions and with this environment and with these failings, 
is this all just the coaching eye aspect of, all right, I'm watching this athlete change and move today. We need to shift the environment just a little bit this way to move them forward. Or is it systemized? Like how, how do you go about the continual process of an athlete with these environments, with this intention, without a ton of the, the easy metrics that we have? Yeah. Great question. So when, when we would have hitters in, um, there would be a somewhat of a formalized process at the start and it, you know, it's not much, but basically what we would do is we would do a, some type of, of warm-up to kind of get the brain going. So we had the, the stochastic resonance therapy machine. Um, that's kind of a, a whole separate advice or, or a whole separate topic, but we use that to kind of get their nervous system firing. Um, we would use that or we would play some type of small game. So one thing that they really liked is we would do a, a type of tennis game where they would stand, uh, let's say 40, 50 feet apart. And they would, one person would be at the wall the other person would hit it at them and they would try to, you know, hit it past the wall. And they, they love that, especially the younger guys, like they really took to that. So that gets them kind of emotionally going. And then in terms of seeing how the, the training session was going to be directed that day, um, it was never laid out ahead of time. So basically what we would do is they would go through two to three rounds of overhand front toss, you know, just to kind of feel out how they were feeling that day. I'd be watching and say, okay, this is what they need today. And it can be individual and it can also be a group because we would get groups of four guys all on the same team, know each other. And, you know, they're just rearing to go. So like, okay, for you guys today, we're going to play a two on two game against the randomized machine because they love that competition. They want to compete against each other. They know each other. They're at similar, similar skill levels. Um, so we might do that. Whereas if on a day, a guy is looking low energy, we hear, because this happened a couple of times, they'd be like, yeah, we have tests this week. And everyone kind of came in and, and they're drowsy. So in that situation, maybe we do a day where um, it, it's a lighter day where like we have a whiteboard. Um, we create this game where it's like, okay, the goal is to hit it. We had a hit tracks, which is really nice. So we could measure specifics. So we'd say like, okay, 90% of your, of your top exit velo is the goal. And then it has to be in between um, 10 and 25 degrees when you hit it for a launch angle. And if you do, you get this many points. If you get this, you get this many points. So obviously that's not quite as high intensity, but it's still going to engage them. It's going to be more fun and they're not going to fail as much. Whereas when we put them off that randomized machine in a game like situation, they're going to be failing quite a bit. So just taking into account, how do they look in those two to three, maybe four warm up rounds. And then off of that, okay, you know, we could go any direction and, and we're just kind of, or I was just kind of seeing how, how that group went that day. And then, so that, that, that's the day to day. How do you add up all the day to days to that kind of long-term progress? Is it the, is it every day watching that and progressing it that way and seeing like, is there some sort of metric that you look in the increase every like year or right. so, you know, like what kind of, how does, cause I'm very similar with the, my day-to-day setup of that. And I, I think a lot about how do we progress all of this intention and uh, variability into the long-term picture of that athlete. Yeah. So we did, we had a couple metrics. So we had a board of, well, we had a board and then we could also send individualized reports. Um, so on our board, we tracked highest overall exit velocity. So, um, and you had to be, I think you had to be 95 plus to get on the board. Um, so we would track, you know, what is your overall peak exit velocity? And that would normally come off of pretty easy overhand front toss. So for that metric, it's just a pure measure of how hard can you hit the ball? Um, but what we also did is, we created a point system for the days that they did randomized machine and we would keep track on the board of who is highest and that as well. So where a lot of places do do the 
the active velocity tracking. Um, what we did is we said, okay, that's great off of overhand front toss, but now who actually performs the best when you're going off this randomized live machine. So like, let's say we do that once, maybe twice a week um, with an athlete kind of every week they're going through and they're getting that stimulus and they're trying to beat whatever they got last time. So there is, there is kind of an, an overall larger picture where we're probably gonna have one or two days where we focus on exit velocity. We're gonna have one or two days where we focus on really just, Hey, today's going to suck, you know, try to figure it out. And then we'd also have one or two days where it's like, today's going to be a little bit lighter on the intensity and maybe you have something in your swing that we're going to try to address. Um, so, so that's kind of how we laid it out kind of big picture. And, and then we use those metrics like exit velocity and like how they're performing off of um, game like environments to measure long-term. Is this working? Is this not working? What adjustments do we need to make? I like that. And how do we combine now the, the, the weight room side of things and the, the, the purely like bodily output side of things into the, technical sport that is baseball like how are you going about approaching that in other sports like let's say you know obviously you work with football um the the weight room is thought to be more directly related to what happens on the field um in baseball like and i guess by that i mean like like the actual motor skill of it so like you're running uh, in football you can run in the weight room you're jumping you're doing all this stuff in baseball the the primary things are hitting and throwing so really that, that doesn't require running. That doesn't require jumping. It's very, very, very motor specific. So what we did in the weight room was really just, we're trying to develop them as humans and develop them as athletes. Um, and at a certain point we would add some rotational type stuff, but we also understand, Hey, you're getting, you know, anywhere from 50 to hundred swings in per day that you're in there. So you probably don't need that much more rotational work. And, and within that, within those swings, we're using weighted bats. So we're using like light bats, we're using heavy bats. So that was our rotational work. Um, so in the, in the weight room, it's more like it, it is, is your body in a good position? Um, can you kind of contract muscles that, that we want you to contract in certain positions? Can you then accept force? And then can you then produce force out of that? So it is, we kind of use a, are you, are you familiar with Jay Schroeder? Yes, a little bit. Okay. So we, we kind of use somewhat his stuff is how we started. And then we, you know, progressed off of that to where we were doing pretty high intensity, pretty high volume with things like, uh, you know, the, uh, the reverse hyper. Um, so we would do like kind of like leg extensions with that, but we'd have a band. So we'd be swinging back and forth. Grant followers posted some, some similar stuff. So, um, that was kind of what we did in the weight room where it wasn't really baseball specific, but we're trying to produce their or, or increase their output just as overall athletes and humans. And then the, you, you, you mentioned the, the batting aspect and, and we, we've talked a lot about that, but kind of the other aspect is the throwing aspect and the pitching aspect that you hear. And if you just look at it, like how, technical that is like the pitch to throw like what is kind of the opposite side now the the approach to training that how does that change from working with the at batter like is the intention different like what kind of what kind of is your approach with the throwers right yeah so it's interesting because it's it is two different skills hitting you have to react throwing like you really don't have to react so it's a very close skill um so our approach with those type of guys is similar in that we're not really going to say hey I see this on your video, just try to fix this, right? We're still going to create environments for them. So if somebody is struggling with, let's say a, a lead leg block, we might go, you're going to do one throw with your foot landing on a two inch box up. We're going to go one throw with your foot landing on a two inch box down. Then we're going to go one throw normal. So by perturbing that foot, it's going to be more stable because of like the, the preflex, right? It has, it, it doesn't know when it's going to land. So it's going to be stable earlier. So it's going to be stable in your throw. So in terms of making changes there, we still approach it that way. Um, 
but it is much more structured where we, we track volume, we track intensity. Um, we kind of know, you know, they can't throw hard every day. So, so they're on kind of like a weekly monthly schedule. Um, so it is more, much more structured in that way. I like that. And now kind of new parts of the podcast that we're going to be adding in today. Um, it's going to be fix my swing segment of the podcast. And I, I sent over a little, uh, a little clip of my uh, super athletic and, um, t- top tier softball swing to coach over here. And he's, he's going to kind of fix it and break it down. And I think this will be an interesting part to see kind of the, the live thought process of how you, how you approach this and then what kind of, what you would change about it and how you'd actually implement these things. I think a lot of times we talk about a lot of out there things and a lot of out there ideas, which is great, but hopefully this is a cool segment to see how you actually dove into this. Yeah. So I'm going to treat it like a, a baseball swing, not like a fast, fast pitch softball swing, if that's okay. Yeah. So it, you can obviously tell that it's de- developed for a slow pitch softball swing. It's a straight meat head swing, which you said yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay. So biggest thing that I'm seeing, um, just some specifics that I would probably want to address is, you know, barrel gets very flat. Um, hands kind of get out in front and also posture is leaned back. And that's probably because you're trying to hit a bunch of home runs and the ball's coming down at, at a pretty extreme angle. So you have to swing up. Um, so essentially what that would look like is we, we would do a couple different things. So number one, obviously right away, we're going to introduce velocity because velocity is going to force you to be a little bit more um, downhill with that swing path. Because if you're that far uphill, you have very little time to actually get on path with a pitch coming in. Right. If you think about it the barrel is traveling, the ball is traveling, the longer that your, your bat is, is on the same plane, like, like the same uh, vertical plane as the ball that's coming in, the more chance you have of making contact. So that is number one. What I would do is just introduce velocity to help you understand, Hey, this, this swing, uh, this swing plane doesn't really work for that. Um, number two with the posture. One thing that I like to do is we'll use, uh, like different heights of, um, like weight plates. So if you think about like a bumper plate, we go bumper plate under the back foot. And what that's going to do is make you feel like you're so like when you, if you think about when you stride out in a baseball swing, if your rear foot is elevated or your rear leg is elevated, when you land, it's going to feel like your body is tip forward a, a bunch. It's going to feel very uncomfortable. So that's one thing that we would do with there. Um, like I said, we're also going to do the opposite. So we're going to go that same weight plate now underneath your front foot. So what that's going to do is now you're going to feel like you're shifted way back in your swing. So that's going to exaggerate the problem. So I, I mentioned earlier that my thought process is, and this, again, this can go with any motor skill. If you see, if you see something that you want to address, make it harder, but then also make it easier to do like the quote unquote, you know, correct way that you're trying to get them to switch to. So that's something that we would do there. And I think that would be a, a really good start to, uh, getting that to translate, but Hey, it doesn't look, doesn't look that bad to be honest. It's, it's not too bad for a, a slow pitch softball swing. <laughs> I like that. Uh, we have a, um, we always have baseball players that come in and, and it's just funny to see how different the swings are. The baseball players are all tight, quick and explosive through. There's not a ton of uh change in the level. And usually the balls like that line are over the pitcher's head. And yeah. then you have, then you have the meathead softball player walk up and it's all lean back and like cranking for height. You would be starting your swing and you'd be like, oh, there goes the ball into the glove, you know? Yo, <laughs> yeah, it would, it would not be good if I had to go hit a fastball. It would not be good. Right. Um, but that's, that's interesting because we, we talk a lot about environments today so far. And, you know, it, it's just interesting to point out like, hey, you, the environment that you play in is slow pitch softball. So your swing's going to adapt to that environment. If we were to put you in a more baseball environment where it's higher velo, flatter pitch, 
you know, then your swing is going to have to adapt it in that direction. So it's just kind of an interesting side note that the, you need to make sure that the environment that you're putting yourself in is going to be conducive to what you want to see on the field. Yeah. And something on that note, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot is, and it, it might make sense is like the baseball player would, to me, the baseball player just way faster, slow pitch softball, the skill sets way lower, but the general arts, and this is something that I've been thinking about, just having the general ability to hit something. Uh, and I don't know why I've been thinking about this, but it, this seems so specific in the realm of like, you're, you're hitting one ball off that fast pitch, you're doing one thing. And if we have a general capacity to hit a ball with something that's in your hand and implement the hit in your hand, and just get a wider range of being able to hit something. And you talk about, there's a lot of the, um, is it Cuba? I, I don't know where it's, uh, where it's from, but they talk about a lot of like hitting the, hitting the, um, the bottle caps with the sticks. And to me, like, it makes a ton of sense that they're able to translate just because they, they've developed that wide range of general hitting abilities into the specific range of baseball hitting abilities that they, they need to develop for their sport. But I feel like there's not a lot of just general abilities to be able to make contact that hand-eye contact through the zone. And the way I look at it is that is very important. If you have a younger athlete, it, that's a great time to start introducing that stuff because kind of like I talked about before, the more, more different environments and experiences a motor skill has, like if you think about a motor skills, like a person, right, the more different experiences that motor skill has. So like you mentioned, maybe it's hitting the bottle cap with a stick. Maybe it's hitting a, um, a heavy ball with a big bat or it's hitting a rock with a stick, whatever the case might be. If you can do that stuff when you're younger, that skill has much more robustness as you get older. Now, I do think that there's some limited impact. Like, let's if you're a college baseball player, um, you know, if you're a professional baseball player, if you've never hit a, a bottle cap before, I don't think it's it's going to give you a huge return, <laughs> return on investment, right? To, to start doing that stuff, um, be, just because it, it is quite a bit, it is pretty far away from the actual skill of, of hitting a moving baseball itself as pitch from a pitcher. Right. So we have to, we have to kind of take that into account, but adding that in when the athlete is younger and just, yeah, creating that variability is going to be awesome. Yeah. And the, the, the last kind of question before we go into rapid fire round is kind of what has been your biggest eye pro eye opener to training recently. And maybe it's the past year, maybe it's the past month, but what kind of has been the biggest, Oh shit, I wish I would have known this before to your training and how you implement it with your athletes. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that would probably have to be on the weight room side of things. Um, so when, when I was younger, you know, uh, I did a lot of the conventional deadlift squat bench press type stuff. And I was told, you know, if you just get stronger, you're going to be way better on the field. So really I, I've, I've just been expanding on the thought that it, it's not that simple. You know, it's very complex there. Like how, how I like to think about it is there is always an athlete that has gotten to where they want to go without doing your drill. <laughs> right. So like, it's just kind of taking a step back and be like, okay, I, I know that you know, I know that what I'm trying to do here is important, but also like any one thing isn't, isn't going to make or break anything. Um, so it's just kind of having that perspective of, of, you know, taking that step back and be able to say like, I understand that what we're doing here is important, but also, you know, no one thing is going to make or break it. So that's probably the biggest one. I like that a lot. And now we can transition to our rapid fire round. And the first question is kind of what is your, your favorite book or your books that you think the listeners need to read? So I like, two that I like specifically for train are super training. And then also Franz Bosch's book. Um, I don't necessarily recommend reading one without the other because they're kind of two, two different ends, right? A lot of people that read the, the super training get very, very, very weight room focused and, and everything like that. And people that read just the, the Bosch book get very, um, 
you know, kind of, kind of skill focused, but I think when you put the two together, it's, it's a really good combination for understanding, you know, the, the strength, speed side of things, as well as the, the skill side of things. I love that answer. That's a, that's something that I've been trying to tell people like over and over again is if you're going to start to look at outliers, you need to draw from both ends of the outliers, even if you completely disagree with the other end to hopefully find that middle ground that you talked about. Yeah. You, you got to know what you disagree with. Yeah. And then the, the next kind of question is, who's the guest that you think we should have on? And this is kind of how this uh, podcast has kind of networked and grown itself. Um, I, I would have to say Jared Burton, uh, train efficiently. I don't know if you've tried reaching out to him, but I would say, you know, he, he ran a lot of the, uh, a lot of the strength and conditioning stuff that we did at the facility. Um, so he's, he's very now very knowledgeable in that side of things. So I'd definitely recommend, uh, reaching out to him for sure. And then the next question is kind of what's next for you. Uh, maybe it's with the company, maybe it's with what you want to do in life, but what's kind of that next big goal that you're reaching for? Yeah. So this is something that I've been giving a lot of thought to. Um, the, the guy that I look to a lot in terms of the guy that's created kind of an optimal training environment that, that I would want to have is Louis Simmons at Westside. And I'm not, I'm not saying that because I want to do the actual training like he does. Although I do agree with his like avoid accommodation um, principles, but in terms of his actual gym and the culture that he was able to create, you know, he was able to no, no one pays to train there. And that's something that I struggle with a lot because obviously that's going to be ideal, but then how do you make a living? Um, so that's my ultimate goal is to kind of get to that point where I can have a gym where the only thing that dictates whether you're there or not is your attitude um, and how you kind of fit out, fit in with the culture that we have there. Like that's maybe, maybe that'll never happen. Um, but that is the ultimate goal of what I want, what I want to get to. I love that. Have you, have you watched West side versus the world? I did. Yeah. 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 The, the, where they just started, like they talked about how I want to injure that guy. Like they're just so competitive. Once I like was listening to that, I'm like, I'm such a pussy. Like my, me and my training partner are such a pussy compared to what they were going through. Yeah. That was, that was an insane documentary. If you haven't watched it, you definitely need to watch it. Yes. And then last two questions here. This one is kind of when all this coaching stuff is over, when the business is over, what do you kind of want your legacy to be? You know, I, I think something that I think about a lot is, it doesn't really matter what you, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter, but what matters is what you do. Ultimately it's what you do. Um, and just kind of keep that in the forefront of your mind. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're stuck in between two different things, just, just pick one and do it as best as you can. Um, because really that that's all you can do. So just, it's what you do that matters. So, so keep the focus on that. Boom. Coach, we did it. Thanks for being on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.